Well, good morning, church. So good to see everybody here this morning. Um, wasn't that good news about Summer Adventure, right? We're excited about this week. In fact, I got to represent my shirt up here. Um, it's going to be an awesome week. We're really excited about that. Uh, but we're also in a second week of the series that we're calling Salt, Light, and Barbecue Sauce. Has anyone had a cookout yet this year? Okay, a few, a few hands. All right, I see that. Well, this series is on the what, why, and how of evangelism. And if you were here last week, you remember Pastor Dave talked about the what of evangelism. He helped us define that. And so I want to come back here at the beginning and use a quote that he, uh, he mentioned from a guy named J. Max Stiles, who defined evangelism this way. He says, evangelism is teaching the gospel with the aim to persuade. Now, that's a good helpful definition. Evangelism is persuading people with the gospel. Now, I'm willing to bet that most of us in this room or most of us watching online know that. Maybe you would say it a little differently, but you know what it is and you know you're supposed to do it. The problem is you don't. So let me be blunt at the beginning here. I think most Christians know what evangelism is, but most Christians don't do it. Or they do it very begrudgingly, that we know we should share our faith, but we don't. And I want to ask this morning, why is that? I think the answer is really pretty simple, and it's this. It's hard, right? It's not easy to share our faith. Convincing people they need to love Jesus is not an easy task. Because too often, we know we should do something, but we refuse because it's difficult. That's a common theme in our lives, right? Let me offer just a couple other examples where this comes into play. How about, how about flossing your teeth? Anybody out there have a problem flossing their teeth? Right? You just, it's just, ah, oh, like this guy is making it look so easy, but you, you get, you're ready to go to bed and all of a sudden it's like, I don't want to do that. Um, no matter how many times my dental hygienist tells me I should floss my teeth or it'll result in cavities, I still don't do it. Why? Because it's hard, right? It requires dexterity. Secondly, how about going to the gym, right? You know you'd be healthier if you exercise and you eat right, but you just can't get yourself off the couch. It's like, oh, I want to go today, but uh, I just I can't. I know I've been there. Why is that? Again, it's because it's hard. What about managing your money right and creating a budget? You know you'd be better off if you knew exactly where your money was going, but a lot of times we don't do it because why? Because it's hard. It takes time and effort to track where you're spending your money. See, church evangelism is like that. We know we should do it, but we don't because it's hard. And yet we're called to share the good news. In fact, Jesus' last words to his disciples before his ascension into heaven were these. He said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But it wasn't easy, right? I mean, if you just read through the rest of the book of Acts, you will see that people were killed when they did evangelism. Well, how could they do that, you say? Because their hearts were so gripped with the gospel that they had to share it. It exploded out of their hearts. In other words, I want to tell you, they started with why. Now, what do I mean? 
Well, about 10 years ago, a man named Simon Sinek wrote a book entitled Start With Why. And in the book, he introduces a concept called the golden circle. And he argues that the golden circle provides compelling evidence that we are moved to action and achieve more by asking why. In other words, motivation starts from the inside out. In fact, if you apply that to business, most successful, game-changing businesses get this. Cynic says that every single company knows what they do. Some companies know how they do it. Very few companies know why they do it. Why they do what they do. And at the end of the day, the why is what matters most because without the why, no one really cares. You see, the why is what gets us off the couch. If I go to the gym and lose weight, my clothes will fit better and my joints won't hurt as much, right? After eight cavities and not flossing, I got a why, right? <laughs> you better believe I'm flossing because I don't want any more cavities. The why motivates us. It's what inspires us. But if we don't have a why, we'll stay on the couch eating pizza and nachos, in fact, I think this is true for many Christians when it comes to evangelism. That sadly, the reason most of us don't evangelize is because we don't care. We don't care. That is, until something becomes very real to us. I like to tell you about one of the first times it became real to me. In fact, I was a senior in high school. And uh, I had just gone to a Christian summer camp, and I returned to school with the desire to share my faith with my friends. But that desire really didn't fully capture my heart until November of that year. It was Election Day 1999 when I found out that two of my classmates were killed in a very terrible car accident. The third passenger in the car was somebody I knew pretty well. He survived. I played baseball with one of the boys who, who died, and I, I didn't know him super well, but I had a relationship with him, um, and as far as I knew, he wasn't a Christian. His name was Nick. In fact, I still remember somebody coming up to me and, and asking, Bob, is it true? Are they dead? And all I could think about for weeks and months after this happened was, why didn't I tell this kid about Jesus? Was I afraid? Was I apathetic? And it was this incident that lit my soul on fire my whole senior year to share my faith with my friends and classmates. See, church, the why is the fire behind evangelism. It is the center of the bullseye that moves us to action. Has anything ignited the fire in your heart? And the reason you need the fire, the reason you need to know why you do what you do is because, as we already said, it's going to be hard. Evangelist Rico Tice says this about telling people about Jesus. He says it requires us to cross the pain line. So imagine a line 
where you're in a conversation with a friend, and at one point you know there's an opportunity to cross this certain line and go into spiritual things with them. But you know when you cross that line, it's going to go to another level, and it could be painful. That's the pain line. And that's why we don't bring it up, right? How painful would it be to bring the gospel up with your friends, your family, or your coworkers? Would you be mocked? Would you be fired? Would it make Thanksgiving unbearable? That's the pain line. And we all have to cross it if we're going to share our faith. It's the reason most of us don't share our faith, that we feel inadequate or we don't want to start an argument. But if you know why, if you have a fire in your heart like I did when my friends died, it gives you strength, perseverance, and tenacity to cross that pain line. And so, friends, my task this morning is to talk with you about the why of evangelism. What's our motivation? Well, I think it flows from three convictions. The first one is that it flows out of a broken heart. Secondly, it flows out of a love for blind people. And thirdly, it flows out of the conviction that death comes for us all. Broken hearts, blind people, and death comes for us all. And when those convictions grip our souls, we cannot not tell people about Jesus. So with that in mind, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this morning. Lord, I pray as we talk about the topic of evangelism and sharing our faith, Lord, may you just help us to recognize that there is nothing more important than people coming to know you, Lord. Father, move our hearts. Set a fire underneath our hearts that we will be moved to action to share the faith that you have entrusted to the saints, Lord, and I ask that you would move us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, there's a very famous story in the book of Acts where Paul enters the city of Athens. And so if you notice our stage, as it's been mentioned already, uh, this week is our summer adventure, and the theme is Paul's adventures in Athens. And so we thought it would be appropriate to talk about the corresponding passage today. Also, I'm playing Paul this week, so if you want to catch a show-stopping performance, stop by my tent uh, later in the week and you'll see that. So, Paul certainly knew a, a thing or two about crossing the pain line for Jesus. In Acts chapter 17, Paul visits Thessalonica and he shares the gospel with many Jewish people. Some come to faith, others form a mob and follow him all the way to the city of Berea. And in Acts 17, verse 16, we learn that Paul escapes that mob and makes his way to Athens only to have his heart broken. The text says this, now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now that verse shows us our first conviction, a broken heart. Why do we do evangelism? It flows out of a broken heart. Why was Paul's heart broken? Well, the text tells us here that his spirit was provoked because the city was full of idols. And that word provoked can be defined as distressed or greatly upset or annoyed. 
That Paul was annoyed because he saw all these idols out there. Now, I would argue those are surface-level emotions. The deeper motivation, as one commentator puts it, implies a motivation to action. That he was provoked out of a love for God who wasn't getting the worship he deserved. And he was also provoked by a love for people and a desire to convert them to Jesus. In other words, he wants to evangelize them. His heart was broken over the false worship, and it moves him to action and telling people about Jesus. Now, before we learn what happens next, let's sit with this point for just a few moments and ask yourself, am I provoked when I look around me? Put yourself in this scene, right? Paul has been in Thessalonica and Berea, where he's been chased down by some angry Jews who want to kill him. They want to kill him for telling people about Jesus, and so he escapes to Athens, where he's confronted by a bunch of false gods who are stealing the worship of the true God, and out of no regard for his life, he's moved to tell people about Jesus. Why? It flows from a broken heart. A broken heart because the one true God is revealed through Jesus. And I got to be honest, I mean, that just, that stings. Like, that point is convicting because I'm, I ask myself, is my heart broken for people who are worshiping a false god? And I'm not, I'm not simply talking about devout followers of a different religion. Yes, yes, we should care about Muslims and Hindus and Jews and Baha'i and Mormons and whatever other religion you can think of, but we must also care about the people who are worshiping the false gods of money, of secularism, of romance, of education, of pleasure, of politics and, and power. You see, Paul was broken because the city is full of idols. Now, biblically defined, an idol is anything that steals worship from the true God. They are counterfeit gods. They can even be good things that become ultimate things. And in our modern society, uh, we have lots of idols. And I think if you think about Basking Ridge or New York or New Jersey in general, if Paul came here, he would be equally, if not more, broken than he was in the first century. Because every culture has its set of idols, right? right? We may not be we may not physically kneel before Aphrodite, but people are obsessed with beauty. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but money and career cause us to perform a kind of child sacrifice where we neglect our families and children. See, are our hearts broken when we see people worshiping false gods? Because Paul's spirit was provoked, and he was moved to action to tell people about Jesus. And if we take an honest look in the mirror, church, the reason we don't tell people about Jesus is that our hearts are not provoked by this false worship. Or again, put more sharply, we don't care. We don't care. We're apathetic people. And why is that? Well, truthfully, I think we need to take a deeper dive into our own hearts because we are not immune to idolatry ourselves. Why is that important? 
Well, often when I speak with people about evangelism, the excuse offered is a neglect or, of, or lack of preparation. So people will say, well, I don't feel equipped to handle the new challenges in our day and age. And to be sure, evangelism can certainly be much harder today than in previous decades due to a changing culture. But I am convinced that if you really look under the hood, that is not the root reason that people don't share the gospel. Author Becky Pippert wrote a classic text on the nature of evangelism entitled Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. And in this book, she makes a profound assertion about something that must take place in our heart. She says this. She says, fear, not ignorance, is the real enemy of evangelism. Fear, not ignorance, is the real enemy of evangelism. She continues, she says, we fear that our friends will reject or marginalize us if we speak about our faith. We fear that we don't know what we don't know will be exposed. We fear our beliefs will be challenged. In other words, when we examine our deepest fears, they expose our idols. First, consider family or friends rejecting us means a loss of relationship, right? Loss of relationship can be an idol because it could lead to awkward conversations in the future. And I think, honestly, if we're honest, we have, a, we have an oversized fear of the socially awkward. And that is, is, is that the real reason that, uh, is that really the reason we want to give for not talking with people about Jesus? In fact, a number of years ago, I remember one of my first experiences crossing the pain line. I was playing racquetball at a local gym. Maybe there's some racquetball players out there. On this particular night, I was alone hitting balls on the court, hoping to get better for my next challenge, and I happened to see this, this uh, guy over in another court, and he was by himself too, and so I asked him if he, if he wanted to play. Now, I didn't really know this guy very well, but uh, I had seen him at the gym before, and uh, after a few games, <laughs> my confidence was shot because he, like, destroyed me. I, I think I scored, like, three points the entirety of time that I played him. But after we were done, we sat down, and, and somehow we got started talking about the topic of faith, and I was a fairly new Christian, um, and despite getting destroyed on the racquetball court, I worked up the courage to tell him how Jesus changed my life. And I had this grand vision that this guy would be moved by my testimony, that he'd want to know Jesus, even give his life to him in this one conversation. Well, it turns out he was a Jehovah's Witness, and uh, I was definitely not prepared to engage him at that time in my life. And so we went back and forth for about an hour, and I finally walked away frustrated. Have you ever had that experience? Well, the experience helped me recognize a second idol, the idol of intelligence. Do I have all the answers? See, when our beliefs are challenged, we can look ignorant. It could ruin our reputation. It could make us look like we spent a lot of money on our education only to lack in some areas. And finally, worst of all, sharing our faith and, and, not having, and having to answer questions could infringe upon our personal time. I can't tell you how many times I've, I've, I've passed up on a deeper conversation because it would 
push back my next appointment. See, our fear exposes our idols. What are you afraid of losing if you share the gospel with others? Evangelist Rico Tice wrote a a fabulous book entitled Honest Evangelism. And if I could give you one resource today, I would give you this one. It's short, it's great. Um, And in the middle of the work, he asks a very sobering question. He says, I've often wondered why lovely, compassionate, committed Christians simply don't do evangelism. For years, I I couldn't understand why so many well-taught and in many ways mature believers were just apathetic about sharing the gospel. And pause for a moment and, and let's ask ourselves, is that me? Because here's what Rico concludes. He says, in their hearts, they were serving something good that they had made into their God, their idol. And that's what was stopping them from evangelizing. What idol is keeping you from evangelizing? Why is your spirit not provoked like Paul when you see the idols of other people? Is it perhaps because an idol has gripped your own heart? And if so, your own idol has to be rooted out. And so let me give some legs before we move on to our next point, because Tice offers some diagnostic questions to ask ourselves if we want to find our idols. He says, first, ask yourself, what do you daydream about? Because idols have a way of consuming our mind space. How about this? What do you have nightmares about? Idols are things we fear losing because we believe we cannot live without them. What do you pray about? If we pray for something other than God's will to be done in our lives, that is likely our functional God. Have you ever considered just walking through your neighborhood and praying for lost people? You see, if we rarely think about Jesus, if we don't pray about the things Jesus cares about, if we fear losing everything in our life but Jesus, it's fair to ask, do I really love Jesus? It is the things that we love that capture our hearts. Pastor Jeff Vanderstelt says it this way. He says, you talk about what you love And you love what you talk about. How often do I talk about Jesus? Is your heart broken for the gospel? Because at the end of the day, no matter who you are, you won't do evangelism until you know why. Until your heart is provoked. Until your heart breaks for God's glory. And when it does, you will naturally develop the second conviction. A love for blind people. A love for blind people. So let's come back to Paul. Again, he's on the run from this angry mob who wants to kill him for talking about Jesus. And he gets to the city of Athens and boom, his heart is provoked because of the idols. Now, does he hide? Does he say, I've had enough of this? No. Look at what he does, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Now, at this point, I think, like, this guy is a glutton for punishment, right? He says he gets hit, and then he says, hit me again. He goes back to the Jews, the very people who've been chasing him from Thessalonica. And some of you are listening and saying, see, Pastor Bob, this is why I don't do evangelism. I don't want to confront the mob on on Twitter or wherever because they're going to be trolling me 24-7. I can't hide from them. 
Why does Paul get back in the ring? Because he loves blind people. We see this captured in a letter that he would write to the Corinthian church where he says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. And in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. See, Paul says those who don't know Jesus have a veil over their hearts. They're dying. Satan has blinded them. But later in the passage, he describes the need for believers to preach the gospel. Why? So that the blind will see, that they'll have a chance to see. Paul loved spiritually blind people. And to reach these people, Paul has to expose himself to danger. He has to go where the people are. And so first, as was his custom, he goes to the synagogue, right? To the Jew first. Again, that's a big risk given the experience he had at his last couple stops. But secondly, it says he goes to the marketplace, which is the Greek word agora. Now, the agora was the main public place in the city, impressively adorned with beautiful buildings and colonnades, kind of like this set behind me here. Uh, There's a picture if you want to get a feel for what it was. It was the economic, political, and cultural heart of the city. And if you want a modern picture, just think about Times Square in New York. And so as Paul enters the Agora, if he looks south, as you can see in this picture, he could see all the temples to the false Greek gods of the city, temples to Zeus and Aphrodite and Apollo and Ares. And as noted in point one, this broke his heart and it increased his missionary zeal. But it says in this verse that he reasoned with these people. And the Greek verb suggests that he was not simply lecturing them. No, he was was taking their questions. He was having a dialogue. And the tense of the verb indicates that this this was an extended missionary activity. In other words, Paul was investing time with these people over a long period. He didn't just pop in, give a 30-minute sermon, make everyone cry, and then leave and peace out. No, he stayed, he talked with them, he invested in their lives, because Paul's motivation was not simply a broken heart, it was a love for blind people. Now, I am not a golfer, but I hear that if you want to be good at golf, you need to have both a short game and a long game, and the same is true for evangelism. So what Paul does is he models for us a short game that you can't be afraid to talk with people about Jesus, right? Random people about Jesus. In fact, I've been on mission trips where I've crossed the pain line multiple times and, did, and done cold evangelism. I've sat next to people on planes and shared the gospel with them. Some came to faith in Christ, others didn't. Either way, I was planting seeds. See, that short game is still valid. But Paul also shows us the truth that we have to have the long game in view, And so Paul spends time with these people in Athens. And that's the reason you have to have a why. Because if you don't know your why, you're going to give up after one, two, three years. And when we're talking about sharing the gospel, lives are at stake. See, the marathon runner knows the long game, right? Cross the finish line. And if you don't know why you're running that marathon, you're going to give up on mile 10 or sooner. 
Sharing the gospel with spiritually blind people today is a marathon. Rico Tice explains it this way. He says, over the last 70 years, the culture has changed dramatically. And so just think for a second about 1954. Right? Sharing the gospel with someone in the 50s, well, they often had a sense of the Christian story. The culture was filled with, as author Flannery O'Connor famously said, Christ-haunted people. And we had one task, convince the people they were sinners and they needed Jesus. Now, if you fast forward to 1994, a few more roadblocks are in the way. And so, yes, you have to convince people that they're sinners, they need Jesus, but there's a few more barriers before you can get there. And, and some of the common themes were this. Number one, people thought Christians were weird. Like they got this little subculture thing going on. They're just odd, you know? Secondly, people thought Christianity is untrue now. And thirdly, people would think Christianity is irrelevant. Now, the saving grace for 1994 was that people were still, to some extent, oriented toward God. Now, think about today. Those barriers that I just mentioned are still in place, but we live in a culture not oriented toward God in the slightest. In fact, people are running away from God as fast as they can. And our culture values tolerance and permissiveness in a way that has redefined morality. In fact, if you listen to the voices out there, some people are making the arguments that holding biblical positions is itself immoral. Right? In fact, I wonder how Paul would feel about that idea. He'd probably be provoked what does all that mean for evangelism? Well, more often than not, I would say it, it takes the long game. Right? Evangelism tools like the Romans Road, the Four Spiritual Laws, Evangelism Explosion, they, they do still have a place, but more often than not, it takes a long game where we're sitting with people, where we're, we're dialoguing back and forth like Paul did with the people in Athens. And so let me make it plain. Witnessing takes time and effort. You need to develop your long game. In fact, I've had people tell me that if you really want to witness to somebody, like really and truly invest in somebody and, and hopefully see them come to Christ, you got to invest five years. Five years of building relationship, walking through life, answering questions. And if you're going to invest that kind of time, you better know why. And the why is a broken heart and a love for blind people. Because sadly, there is a pain line here because we know it's going to take a lot of time and effort. And we're often not willing to make the investment. We don't have the time. The conversations are going to be awkward. It's, I, I, listen, I get it. It's hard. I've been there. But what does Paul show us? He shows us that we've got to be provoked and he reasoned with people for a long time. Now, there's a thought out there that Christians are so heavenly-minded that they don't do any earthly good. In fact, I like to argue today that that's actually not the case. Paul was heavenly-minded, and so should we be. In fact, the great apologist C.S. Lewis famously argued that history shows us that those who did the most for the present world are also the ones who thought the most of the next. 
Author Scott, Scott Sauls goes further. He says, in other words, the more heavenly-minded we are, the more our heads and hearts are fixed on Jesus, his kingdom, and his purposes, and when that's the case, the more earthly good we will be. Is your mind fixed on heaven or earth? See, Paul wrote to the Colossian church, and he said, set your mind on things above. In other words, when you focus on the long game, your short game will have far more impact. But people miss this, right? When we share the gospel, we have to share about the life to come, which is so much better than anything we can experience now. And let me give you, let me give you an example. Like, like right now in our, in our cultural moment, people are obsessed with politics, right? But politics is all about this world, it's all about the here and now. Why not point people to a time when King Jesus will reign on his throne and all the things that we argue about will be rendered obsolete because that world will be perfect? Everything sad will become untrue. There will be peace. In fact, the gospel writer John writes this in Revelation chapter 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. But blind people don't know about the new heaven and the new earth. We have to tell them out of love. Now take notice of that phrase, the sea was no more. Because in Jewish thought, the sea represented chaos in life. It represented heartache and judgment. And when John writes, the sea will be no more, it naturally follows that he would say there's going to be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Now, that's the good news. Do people know it? Are you provoked that some around haven't heard this gospel? Do you love them enough to tell them? Friends, if your heart is not broken for the things of God, you won't love blind people. But you have to help them see. And that's the why. That death will be overturned. But until that time, we cannot forget our final point, that death comes for us all. See, before Jesus returns, if there's any constant in this life, it's this. Death comes for us all. And that's the thing people can't escape. That is why we play the long game, because some people don't start thinking about this until the end of their lives. And the writer of Hebrews confirms this heart-stopping reality. He says, and just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. One day, we all will die, and we will meet Jesus. On that day, we will no longer be blind. And the question is, will that be the first day your eyes are opened? And because of this reality, Paul doesn't stop in the marketplace. Look at what he talks, look at who he talks to next. He says this, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now notice again here Paul's getting hit. He's crossing that pain line. But he knows why he's doing it. See, God isn't getting the glory. Death comes for us all. And in this scene, who is his audience? Philosophers. 
People who love to talk and talk and talk. See, the Epicureans believed life was an accident and their main criteria for the good life was pleasure. In other words, since life can have no real meaning, do what makes you feel good. Now, the Stoics worshipped logic and valued virtue and morality. They were good people. They were moral people, uh, virtuous people. Good works was their mantra. Have you met people like this in your life? Right, the Epicureans are the free spirits who live for pleasure. The Stoics are, are the good, moral people who look down their noses at those who don't follow the rules. But they had one thing in common, and what was it? They're going to die. And so the text tells us that Paul is talking about the resurrection, meaning, meaning he's talking with them about the new life they could experience and future life with Jesus. Don't forget that Jesus is the one who overturned death. Now, one of the greatest lies in our culture today is this. We die and nothing happens. And for the evangelist, this is where the rubber meets the road. That everyone has to grapple with the question, what happens after death if I don't know Jesus? All throughout the Acts of the Apostles, they're preaching that there is one name that you can be saved by, the name of Jesus and if you don't know Jesus, the scriptures discuss the grim reality of the doctrine of hell. Now, Pastor Dave offered a message on hell last fall, which I would encourage you to check out. I don't have time to delve deeply into it, but I will simply say there's two major positions. The first position affirms hell as a real place, and those who don't know Christ will experience eternal torment. The second position has been called annihilationism. And it argues that those who don't know Christ will just cease to exist or be annihilated after they die. And while I lean towards the first position, I would argue that both positions paint a picture of spiritual death and eternal separation from God for those who don't know Christ. Now, if that, if people being separated from God for all eternity does not put a fire in your belly, I don't know what will. That is why we cross the pain line. Because there is much greater pain that awaits us in the future. The why of evangelism is to see people saved and spend eternity with Jesus. Death comes for us all. I mean, imagine not seeing loved ones ever again. That, that's the why. Let me put it this way. My daughter is old enough now that she's running all over the place. Okay, She also loves to... To, to be in the water and swim or try to swim. Now, my heart as a father is to see her be safe and live a life that glorifies Jesus. And if she runs towards the road, I stop her from getting hit by a car. And if she's in the pool, I make sure that she's close by me because she really doesn't know how to swim yet. And my point is this. Not telling people about Jesus is like me not saying anything to my daughter as she runs out into the road. It's like me ignoring her in the pool when she can drown. Because you better believe that if my daughter is in danger, I am going to be yelling at the top of my lungs. And I'm going to be running as fast as I possibly can to save her. In fact, I would do anything to keep her safe. I would even throw myself into oncoming traffic to save her because I know where I'm going. Do you catch my point? That the fire in my belly to save my daughter is the same fire we need to feel in our bellies when it comes to evangelism. 
That to ignore my daughter would be to display a lack of love for her. To ignore the false worship in this world is to display a lack of love for Jesus and his glory. Death comes for us all. Have you told people that aren't ready? Let me share this convicting quote from atheist and magician Penn Gillette. He says this, he said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, which is another word for evangelism. I don't respect that at all because if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell and people, people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? I mean, if I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I, where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Now, this guy's an atheist, and he gets it. Do we? Are we really not telling people about Jesus because it's socially awkward? And so at the end of the day, the question we have to ask is this. Do I really love blind people? And more than that, do I really love Jesus? Because if we search our hearts, I believe we will discover that the reason we don't tell others about him is that we love someone or something more than him. Are we really okay, church, with letting people perish due to idolatrous fear? Or will we be provoked to the point that we're willing to cross the pain line and share the good news? Let me close with a passage of Scripture that has gripped my heart since college. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 20 to 40, we read the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And in the story, Elijah is the last prophet of Israel and all the people of Israel have been deceived by the, the false prophets of the false god Baal. And so Elijah goes to Mount Carmel for a dueling match with Baal and his prophets. It's, it's him against 450 prophets. He is way outmanned. So Elijah sets up a challenge. He says, essentially, listen, today we're going to settle who the true God is. So uh, let's build two altars. Let's slaughter two bulls. Let's put them as sacrifices on these altars. And you, prophets, are going to call on Baal. And I'm going to call on the name of Yahweh God. And he says this, the God who answers by fire, he is God. And so they take the challenge. But the prophets of Baal go first. They slaughter a bull, they put him on the altar, and they, they cry out all day and night asking Baal to send the fire on the altar. And he doesn't answer. And so they give up, and then Elijah steps forward. And he ups the ante by asking that the altar be just doused with water. He says, put it on one time. That's not enough. Put it on a second time. That's not enough. Put it on a third time. Make sure there's like a trench of water below this altar. Make sure it's good and wet. And as the scene ends, Elijah calls upon the Lord. He steps forward and he says this. He prays this. And I've never forgotten this prayer. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. And then the fire of the Lord fell 
and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Church, do you see that this is what we are confronting when we do evangelism? That we are soldiers in a war between false gods and the true God. That we're fighting for people's hearts and he's calling us to be his prophets even if no one around us will. And I weep when I read this passage because I know that God is the only one worthy of glory. The only one worthy of worship. And there's so many people not giving him the worship he deserves. There's so many people dying We have to kill the false gods so the true God can sit enthroned on our hearts. I'd invite the worship team to come on stage. There's one more song we're going to do. And as they come, I would just say, can we pray, Lord, send the fire. Lord, send the fire. Lord, send the fire because people are dying. Expose the false gods in our own hearts and the hearts of those around us. It is then that the veil will fall and we will see you as you truly are. Lord, provoke us so that our hearts are broken, our love for blind people grows, and we see the gravity that death comes for us all. Let's pray. Gracious God, I just simply pray this morning that you would provoke us, that you would break our hearts for the things that break yours. Lord, help us not just to pay lip service to our love for you and our love for people, but help us to actually do it. Move us to action like Paul. And may it be for your glory and the sake of the gospel. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.